0: Trust in financial services has been increasing, but with trust in technology companies decreasing and the pandemic accelerating the shift to digital financial services, it's more important than ever to actively build and maintain trust. In association with MyTech, we've launched a report that explores the current trust issues facing financial services brands and how they can be overcome. Head to bit.ly forward slash digital trust report 2021 to download it now.
1: 11FS this is fintech insider news today we bring you stripe launches issuing in europe venmo launched crypto buying and selling and apple launched apple family to help families build credit scores together all this and more on today's show Welcome to episode 522 of FinTech Insider. I'm Mel Stringer, Lead Product Manager at 11FS, and I'm joined by my fabulous colleague and co-host, Simon Taylor, 11FS co-founder and head of Ventures. How are you doing, Simon?
2: Really, really well, thank you, Mel. I am excited for the FinTech news today. My goodness, we've got a lot to get into.
1: Me too, and we've got some great guests as well. So we are joined by um, Anna Herrera, Chief Correspondent, Fintech at Reuters. Welcome back, Anna. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Very well, thank you. And we're also joined by Ellen Muller, Head of EMEA Partnerships at Stripe. Welcome to the show, Ellen. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here. Yeah, me too. Absolutely. And you've had a really exciting week at Stripe. So we're just about to dive into uh, the first story. Let's get started. So the first story is over on Newsroom and um, Stripe has launched Stripe Issuing in Europe in countries including France, Germany, Ireland, Italy, Latvia, Lithuania, Spain and the UK and many more. And Stripe Issuing enables users to create, manage and distribute virtual and physical payment cards, giving businesses more control over how they spend their money. Businesses can design their own branded cards with Stripe Issuing and they can be programmatically controlled with dynamic spending limits blocked merchant categories, advanced combination of rules, and real-time authorizations for each transaction, all managed by a Stripe's issuing API. Stripe issuing integrates seamlessly with Stripe's broad suite of products so that users can manage card issuing programs right alongside payments for prevention, analytics, invoices, and recurring billing. So Ellen, naturally, we should come to you um, first on this. Um, congratulations. And can you tell us more about this announcement? Yes,
3: absolutely. And this has been a launch that I've been very excited about for a while. So i um, thrilled to see this finally launching and being announced here in Europe. So as you mentioned, Stripe issuing is an infrastructure that lets our users programmatically create, distribute, and manage payment cards. And I realize that can sound a little bit abstract um, and a bit of a mouthful. So maybe putting that into, into perspective with some user examples. Um, Zipcar, as an example, uses us in the U.S., Um, to provide gas cards to their customers. So what's really interesting there is um, when they give these cards to their customers to actually fill up the cars with gas, they can also create all these really interesting controls that reduce fraud by making sure that they're only spent in the vicinity of a gas station and they're only for a certain amount. Uh, Another great example that I love is a company called Carrot, which is a fertility benefits provider. And they provide cards for their end customers of those benefits Um, to be able to pay for the treatments. And if anyone's been through any of that in the past, you know it's really expensive. And so it means that uh, those customers can actually use the cards to pay for it and not actually have to spend out of pocket. And maybe a last example, Postmates is another user of ours in the US. They're very similar to Deliveroo here in Europe. And they actually distribute cards to their couriers that help them onboard more restaurants and go um, pick up the food and pay for it at the point of sale using Stripe issuing cards. And they have some really interesting controls on those cards that make sure they can only be spent for the right amount and at the right places, also helping reduce fraud. So um, we've seen really phenomenal um, uptick from merchants in the U.S. where this has been launched for some time and processed billions of payments so far for uh, thousands of customers. Um, and I'm just really excited to actually see what will what we'll get built on top of this here in Europe. It's really not a um, prescriptive to any one use case. And as you heard from the examples I gave, there's a lot that can be done with Stripe issuing. So um, we're thrilled to see kind of what will come next for Stripe issuing here in Europe with our users.
1: Yeah, I can imagine. And it sounds really flexible, um, exciting, and uh, innovative as well. Do you think that this is something brand new in Europe?
3: Well, I will say when we started working on issuing a few years ago, we kind of realized that we were facing this almost second stripe-sized hole in the internet economy. And so with that first one being payment acceptance. And what we did see, and this is true across Europe as well, was just this dearth of developer-oriented solutions um, for card issuance. And so when I say that, I mean clear, jargon-free documentation, modern APIs, fast onboarding they were really meant for internet businesses and people that were building internet businesses. And so that's really where we felt Stripe issuing could fill a critical gap. That's why we built it. And I do think it will hopefully help fill that here in Europe.
1: Yeah, I think so. And um, just, just in case anybody listening doesn't know, um, you know, traditionally card issuing um, is an incredibly burdensome process it can take a long time. Um, I've been involved in a, a few programs where we've uh, you know been trying to brand our own cards and give it to our customers. and in one case in particular it took us nine months from the original idea to actually getting the cards in the hand of customers and that's not even the pavement testing process that you that you have to go through. So um, I heard that Stripe can now do this in two days which for me is absolutely amazing. And if I could have gone back in time and saved myself nine months of parting, that would have been amazing. How is this possible? How can you do it in two days?
3: Well, I would say there's a lot of work behind that. And, and part of the benefit is that we've built um, a lot of that kind of similar onboarding infrastructure for the other products that we have on Stripe. And so uh, what is really interesting about this product is that existing users can, can up, get up and running really quickly. New Year's can get up and running qu- really quickly And it works so seamlessly also with the rest of Stripe products, I think you mentioned earlier. Um, But a lot of that is the secret sauce behind the scenes that actually helps us uh, make this more seamless and improve that onboarding. But we do feel that that's going to be a real differentiator um, for the product. Mm
2: -hmm. Can can I just jump in there, Mel? Because I think what's really been interesting in the past five to 10 years is, um, you know, we've seen Europe, we've had Rails Bank for some time. We had Wirecard before that and everything they were doing with GPS. We've had people who can do really interesting things with cards. And it sort of became the beginning of the Neobank, Challenger Bank revolution was it was faster, cheaper uh, to get a card into the market. But what's interesting to me about, especially where Rails Bank and Stripe are now going, is they've made it faster and cheaper again by abstracting more of that complexity and making it more modular, more building blocks likes, more developer friendly in, in the process. But I also think um, that that really has unleashed this creativity, like to, to your point, Mel, if you were going to try and do this, I, I can, I've always got this banker that sits on one of my shoulders going, oh, well, we could have launched a card that blocked gambling or that did all of that stuff. Yeah, but you didn't. And that's the kind of the big thing for me is once you put these tools in the hands of developers, and you make it easy to work with, you make it faster, you make it cheaper, innovation follows. And I think what's been interesting is how companies like Stripe, how companies like Rails Bank, Modular Finance have abstracted that complexity of being regulated. And yes, the end customer might be um, paying something different than they would have done, not the end customer, the the developer, than they would have done if they'd have gone directly to a bank. But you've created so much value and gotten rid of so much upfront cost uh, that it really does become a different conversation about engagement um anna i'm interested in your views as you look at to from an international perspective do we need a card for everything or are, are we are we going to have too many cards eventually
4: i don't know i feel like i had too many cards and i was also just trying them out because like you know like why should i not try the products out at least now i'm relieved because i'm in another country and i can't try things out in the u.s anymore so it's it's limiting that um it's interesting on the card issuing right because obviously we also have another big FinTech player now, Marketo, which is expanding everywhere in Europe. They've been here for a while, I guess. Um, a while in fintech terms, which isn't very long. <laughs> and they're going into Asia. So it's 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 becoming an area that is probably quite boring to hear about for non-fintech people and consumers, but it does it, but it is very exciting from a sort of B2B perspective. And, you know, it is impacting, as you're saying, you know, what people can do with their cards. But again, I'm wondering like will will you actually have all these cards or or does that not even matter because in reality you know you could be issuing you know um digital versions of the card but then again maybe you know i'm speaking to you simon so you probably think that it won't be cards it'll be digital coins so Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know we're we're talking about the future of now not the future of like years but who
2: knows so i'm interested in your perspective on this ellen because the the examples you gave were really use case specific of the kind of thing where it wasn't just a card with a brand on it it was a card that does this thing how much do you see that as the trend versus more neobanks or something else because stripe's very much an enabling company and i guess you you often get surprised by what your own customers do
3: yeah i mean i think it hit the nail on the head and so much of what we saw get built on it even just in the past year or two um we, we never would have guessed. We never would have thought of those use cases as we were building the building blocks. And that is actually how we approach it. Let's give you the tools. And if you need to be spending money as a business, then this may be a great way for you to actually set a bunch of controls around that. And we don't necessarily know what that looks like for your specific business. And so I think you're right that a lot of the use cases I gave are very specific, and they're very specific to a particular business model, a particular industry. And from our standpoint, it was very important that we were able to give the tools that any of those industries could use. And so certainly you'll see kind of some fintechs build on top of that, but actually you have a fertility company building with that. You have a delivery company um, and and kind of the list goes on. And so I do think we're going to see some pretty creative use cases, but it's almost like if you're a a company that needs to spend money on something in the flow of your business, this may be a useful tool for you.
1: I think it's also really interesting um, how how companies can pivot using this tool as well. So if you've launched a card program and you've got all sorts of restrictions and, uh, I guess, agreements in place with um, all of the different traditional providers, um, it's quite difficult to, um, you know, Alter what you've put out into market and adapt it. So you've got to sort of unpick it from the from the core. But with this, I'm assuming you can uh, reprogram and alter and iterate um, even after you've got the card in the hands of the customers.
3: That's definitely right, Mel. And I, I think actually, what also becomes very interesting um, is how it actually how you can actually expand your business with this. And so I think what we've found is, you know, coming back to your point of having to go find a bank partner and go through all of that headache as a business, actually this really makes that seamless. And so we actually have customers in the in the US, this is true of really whenever Stripe launches in a new market, they say, great, we're actually gonna wait for you to go there first because it's too much of a headache for us to go actually build that ourselves and go find those relationships. Um, And so we're both excited about what will be built from European businesses here coming to us from scratch and then also the businesses that are coming elsewhere. Um, that now can expand because the product is available. Um, by segue of that, we launched the UAE, not related to issuing, but we launched the UAE two weeks ago. And we had this waiting list of 12,000 UAE businesses, but then we also had this waiting list of international businesses that were saying, great, we're going to launch there now that you've launched there. And so we get really excited about both that balance of the kind of new new users that come on in that market, but also the ones that want to expand. And I think that'll be true with issuing as well.
2: And I think what's interesting about that is that flip from like very regional um, financial services to kind of international and global, because. It- Financial services has been globalized, like we've had Swift, we've been able to move money around the world, but you haven't had one API to move money globally. And if we could head towards two or three um, dominant APIs or platforms, then actually that could be kind of interesting so long as they're um, competing in, in, in positive ways um, and entering new markets. So what happens next is going to be exciting for sure.
1: Um, So also we discussed uh, card issuance on episode seven of our sister podcast, Under the Hood, uh, where we're joined by Mastercard and GPS for a deep dive look at payments and card products and how far card products have come in the past five years as well. So search Under the Hood in your podcast app to to listen to that. So I'm going to move us on now to the next story, Um, although actually I could have spoken to you about that all day, um, Ellen. So the next story is uh, Venmo launching crypto buying and selling. So Venmo, the peer-to-peer payment service owned by PayPal, has started allowing users to buy, hold, and sell cryptocurrencies on its app, a step that could inspire more mainstream adoption of the asset class. Venmo users will be able to buy Bitcoin, Ethereum and Litecoin cash for as little as $1 and publish transactions on the app's feed, the company said. More than 30% of Venmo customers have purchased crypto or equities, 20% of which have started buying during the pandemic. In 2020, Venmo customer behavior um, the behavior study found, uh, found their stats. So Venmo um, senior vice president and general manager says our goal is to provide our customers with an easy to use platform that simplifies the process of buying and selling cryptocurrencies and demystifies some of the most common questions and misconceptions that consumers have. Um, Anna, you broke this story for Reuters. I'm going to come to you first for your thoughts on this. What do you think the significance of this is?
4: So it's it's a big deal for crypto, I guess, and also for PayPal. We knew it was coming because when they launched pay- buying and selling on the PayPal wallet, then they said that it was going to come to Venmo, and it came in time when they said it it would. Um, obviously, you know, Venmo is is just massively mainstream in the U.S. You know, partly because bank payments were so bad and are still bad. They launched Zelle. The banks launched Zelle to catch up. So literally everyone has Venmo. You, you know, if you, if you live there, you know you say Venmo, mon- Venmo me money, like you would say I'm going to Google this. So the fact that now, I guess between Venmo, Square, and PayPal, just broadly, you know, I think they have so many people covered, millions of people covered who can now just buy crypto very easily on on the platform that, that they that they have. So that's very significant. Um, it's significant for, for PayPal itself, right? Because they've seen competition increase dramatically on the P2P payment side with with Square and, and their, their Cash Up. And Cash Up has had crypto buying since 2018, I believe. So, you know, and, and they PayPal has been trying to monetize Venmo. So I wonder if this is a play for that. And and also play to keep it, you know, younger. And it's interesting they said that that their customers had already been buying <laughs> Uh, crypto, so it shows that you know maybe they were seeing people going elsewhere, and maybe someone was opening a Cash App, uh, you know, wallet just to to buy crypto and and then stop using Venmo and start using Cash App. So so it's it's pretty interesting. Um, obviously, you know, one thing that one thought that I had because I'm a party pooper is you know now it's <laughs> it's become so easy to buy crypto. And crypto remains in Bitcoin. And this is not all crypto that you can buy. It's just four out of the very many coins. But you no, know, it's so easy now to buy it. And Bitcoin and other coins remain highly volatile. So what happens when or if the price drops? Then there will be way more people than before who might have bought it, right? You know, it's it's just it's just a thought. It doesn't mean necessarily that it's gonna crash. But I wonder if, you know, the implications. Um I'm sure they've been thought out, but but it's just interesting. I wonder if them was prepared for people complaining because their investment has dropped, right? You know, they're a payment company and now they're an investment company also,
2: right? Yeah. It's the old, um, Warren Buffett. Everybody's a genius in a bull market, right? If the prices are going up, everybody's brilliant. But if the prices go down, things start to go horribly wrong. And and, and uh, of course, Robinhood saw the backlash when um, they had the one um, poor individual who had you know taken out some risky investments and thought they'd lost all their money, and, and very sadly, uh, and unfortunately, then went on to commit suicide. There are real-world consequences of people losing money that I think you're right to call that out, Anna, and we, we need to be mindful of that when we're getting caught in this hype. The thing that crypto has done extremely well is work as a marketing tool. Um, the engagement levels that Robinhood have seen, that Cash App has seen, um, has been absolutely phenomenal. Uh, and it seems that the the consumer comes for the crypto, stays for whatever the service is, and that as a marketing tool makes sense. It's still the jury's out on whether or not this is a long term investment. Uh, asset class is it an inflation hedge? Everybody has their own story about what crypto is really for and what it really means. But the one thing you can't argue with is it's been an effective marketing tool. And I was speaking to somebody who works at one of the major suppliers to folks, folks like the, these types of uh, wallets providers um, in, in the crypto custody space. And uh, he was telling me that uh, you know th- even the big banks are now very seriously looking at this space, or at least some of them are. Where you know everybody asking the question maybe eight out of ten banks are like no not now not ever and we've seen some headlines this week with uh, HSBC and NatWest saying we won't bank anybody on the business side that touches crypto which is probably a little bit out of date um you you heard it here first guys um but then there's one out of ten banks that are like hmm this is interesting maybe we should do something and one out of ten banks that are like oh my goodness we need to we need to get moving with this which is a completely different story from where this was in 2017 where universally the banks were sort of saying, we will never ever touch crypto. And some of the regulatory mood music in the US is really quite different to what it has been, I think, in Europe um, historically, uh, where you know the, the FCA in the United Kingdom has, has largely said, hey, you could lose some money, and it's only really put out warnings. It's not really talked up some of the benefits, whereas actually in the U.S., um, the OCC has granted charters to banks and said implicitly, banks can hold crypto. And I think that was a real watershed moment that we're now starting to see just that tiny movement have real consequences downstream. But let's make sure we manage the risks as as we move into this brave new world.
5: I
4: think what's interesting is that more in, in the U.S. and I, I hope I'm not wrong, but there's always been more sort of a, an openness for retail investors to invest in in riskier assets, and by that I mean stocks, even whereas in the in in Europe, you know, retail investors don't normally go out and buy stock. No, it's not as common, right? So I think maybe that's slightly a progression of that, right? Like, okay, at least Bitcoin, we figured out it's like. It's 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 interesting. You may not think it's the future of the world, but at a minimum, you might think that it's you know worth it having it in your portfolio, like some sort of risky stock. So go ahead and do it. And now we feel comfortable, you know, letting you buy it, right? So I think it's it's just this mentality. And as you were saying, we're discussing it as well internally, like just the difference between the banks, right? Just the attitude. Of course, we've seen, you know, the, the moves by the banks in the U.S. have been mo- mostly on the institutional and, and side or wealthy sort of individuals, which is very different. But even just the posturing of saying we don't want to have anything with crypto now, it just seems like very strong and kind of against the times. Who knows who will be, right? Maybe that's the best thing to do now, but it's still quite shocking and it just shows how volatile. Crypto is as a, as a story, not even as an asset. Like one month, you all the banks say no, then they say yes. And then you're surprised when they say no. It's just pretty fascinating.
2: I was going to say, I really do think that the banks need to pick a story and stick to it from, from a lot of that because it's so inconsistent across the group um, and that can mean hell no or hell yes but it has to be one and it has to be a conversation a- across the organization. It can't be as simple as saying oh we think this is high risk we're de-risking the whole sector and then that's it no more conversation and we're just going to close a bunch of bank accounts. I think that's really really lazy that you can go and materially look at the risks go engage with the regulator rather than just going this is a high risk sector we're not interested And it, and I think that we will start to see that change come uh, there there being a lot more banks in the us you see that different risk appetites and different risk policies emerge and where in a concentrated banking sector you struggle for that innovation because all the big banks all get to buddy up together and say oh we think this is scary and then no innovation happens in the market and a whole geography loses out Sorry, Mel.
1: No, I was just going to say um, t- to your earlier point um, around how mainstream uh, crypto is becoming, but how it's slightly different. There is sort of a, a different take or nuance um, to it than other kinds of investment. And I think uh, individuals are more open about their crypto investments than they would be um, other stocks necessarily, or more proud or more overt somehow. And it's interesting that um, Venmo is allowing um, users to publish their transactions on the app's feed as well and um, that sort of more social uh social engagement around crypto
4: yeah that's a very venmo thing to do right when they launched you would automatically share where it would automatically share where you were sending money and that caused lots of issues between couples i guess and other weird stuff happening where you would see where the money was going so then they disabled the, the feature where it automatically shared i think so, so the sharing component is a very bembo thing, but it is true that it sort of seems like it's more of a social investment or a, let's say, meme or mem. I'm never sure what the word is and shows that I'm a millennial and not Gen Zer. But, 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 you know, it, it it's, that, it's that mixing of, of the, the sort of internet culture and, you know, investing together that's quite unique to crypto and a bit of also, I guess, um, you know, cult mentality-like at
2: times there's two macro trends there's one um memes move markets and that is very much the case in Elon Musk and Dogecoin is a, is a classic example of how memes are moving markets. Uh, there's the boredom economy. Everybody's at home they're not spending as much. So are they deploying? And will we see that as the world opens up that that starts to change? Uh, and then there's the, the real thing that's emerging around multiplayer fintech, which is very Venmo to do, but there's companies now like public.com and common stock where sort of building that sense of community around how we invest and making it okay to talk about that as a form of education. Even Wall Street bets, to a certain degree, is multiplayer fintech. It's, it's a space where talking about money and investments is is okay. And actually, especially in Europe and, and the UK, indeed, it's been a bit taboo. The US has always had a culture where that's kind of okay. But it, it was after 1929 and the, the Great Depression that the SEC was invented, um, and we, we saw the you know, retail investors protected. Like, the back of my mind, as much as this is great innovation, I do worry that sometimes things being completely without friction and a little bit of friction can be a good thing i mean um i was listening to an interview with shopify a couple of weeks ago on a different podcast and the thing that they talk about in their product design is positive friction like there are times at which you need to introduce positive friction and i just wonder if we could do with a small dose of that um, and i'm sure there's lots of good product people thinking about that listening but like yeah that just feels timely
1: Mm, I agree. Ellen, final word from you. Uh, How do you feel about this story, crypto and uh, Simon's positive friction? Yeah, I
3: mean, I think it's interesting because Venmo is not the first to have sort of the lucrative side hustle of crypto investment. I mean, it is that there's other companies that have done this. I know Revolut's done something similar. I personally think what is interesting about this is that sort of maybe it does create more mass market understanding of crypto and people are then getting themselves up to speed and you're seeing more people invest, but also sort of understand it more. What I think will be interesting with that is does that then leap into more product utility? And that's what we're not yet seeing it yet. So we're still looking at this as an investment tool. We're still seeing these payments companies offer this as an investment tool, but it's not yet moved to that sort of currency. Um, as a way really of paying and from a more kind of product utility standpoint. So for me, that's what I'm watching with this is kind of where does this actually evolve? Does it evolve if you also are increasing that mass market understanding?
1: Final, final word from you, Simon, yeah. Sorry,
2: very briefly. It was interesting in previous announcements that both PayPal and indeed Visa have talked about actively looking at stable coins. Um, so stable coins being, uh, unlike crypto, they are stable by design, so pegged to the US dollar. So you move these tokens around and, and you can peer-to-peer pay almost globally in almost real time, almost free. Uh, and that would be super interesting next step to your point, Ellen.
1: Great. So I'm going to have to wrap up there and we're just going to take a quick break, um, but we'll be back shortly.
0: 11FS is supported by Banking Circle. Connect to the fastest, most cost efficient and transparent payment solution available in the market. Our brand new podcast is here. In Under the Hood, we lift the lid on the banking infrastructure that's shaking up the financial services industry. In partnership with Synapse, we'll explore a different area of banking tech every Thursday and talk to experts around the world. Head to your favorite podcast app and follow Under the Hood to catch the latest episode.
1: So the next story is over on TechCrunch, and it's that FinTech OS nabs 65.5 million for a low-code approach to modernizing legacy banking. FinTech OS, which has built a low code platform aimed at larger, older banking and insurance companies to help them build new services and analytics on top of and around their existing infrastructure, has raised 51. A million, which is sixty one point five million dollars, in a Series B round of funding. FinTech OS has targeted the wave of incumbents in the insurance and banking industries that have been slowly watching newer players and newer challenger banks swooping in and picking up customers, while they've been unable to respond, mostly because of their infrastructure being too old and too big. Today the banking platform is designed to help banks launch more retail services for consumers and small and medium-sized business customers as well and for insurance companies to bring uh, new health, life and general insurance products. Before we dig into this, we heard from Fintech OS CEO Tio Glidoras to tell us more.
5: We are very excited to share the news uh, with the world. We sealed our series B 60 million dollars led by Draper Esprit. We do not take the trust from our investors uh, lightly though. This achievement basically validates our vision that we want to transform uh, the way financial technology is being built all over the world. A customer-centric data-led platform facilitated with a low-code infrastructure. This new round will help us grow at the pace needed to improve outcomes for banking, financial services institutions, and insurance companies, as well as their customers at global scale. Uh, The funds will be primarily used to accelerate uh, our product innovation, uh, to cement our company's position in Europe and the UK, but also to set an international footprint in North America, Asia Pacific, and uh, the Middle East.
1: So I'll come to you first on this, Simon. What were your thoughts?
2: FinTech OS is a super interesting business. Um, in my notes here, it says they've been growing at over 200% a year. Customers include SockGen and Idea Bank, um, and international insurance brokers, they're, they're kind of one of these platforms that you put in over the top of your old legacy systems. And you know, 10 years ago, we would have called companies like this an omni-channel solution. I think that's probably underselling a little bit of what FinTech OS really does. But the idea is is kind of similar to those types of platforms like Backbase and many others where the you bring in this platform, you integrate it down into some of the the core legacy systems, but you gradually make this new thing that's sitting over the top, manage the customer data, and you do more and more of your product management and your product configuration higher up and closer to the customer, rather than down in the old 1970s, 80s and 90s technology that had been there for many, many years. And for a lot of smaller organizations, this is good bang for buck. This is a good way to move your business forward, compete with people at lower cost and start to get better, faster products um, to market than you would have historically had. So it's not really a banking as a service solution, although I, I would imagine FinTech OS are starting to do that. But it's, um, it's a good way to very quickly catch up with a lot of the change that's been happening uh, in the market. And moving towards low-code is, is a big macro trend so that you don't need to be great at engineering. You can start to do th- more and more things with drag and drop. And indeed, the no-code movement is, is now quite substantial with companies like Uncork raising vast sums of money to help businesses transform how they would do things historically. Um, and UiPath just hit IPOs. So so, you know, really, there's a very good business in helping old companies do things digitally. Um, and FinTech OS feels like it's, it's doing that in, in an interesting way. The last interesting thing that stood out about this for me was Draper Esprit um, have invested here. And Draper Esprit is also an investor in Thought Machine. Thought Machine is a very modern core banking system. That's the place where you where the deposits actually sit, where you create the products, where you connect into the payment systems, and then FinTech OS is this low code thing that kind of sits above it. Part of me wonders if Draper is thinking hmm, maybe these two things sit together in some way. You, if you, if Thought Machine's a little bit scary for you right now, maybe FinTech OS is a good place to, to kind of start. My my one caution to any executive though, they're hoping for low code and no code and that's sort of stuff is really understand your own internal infrastructure to be ready for this type of thing. Because uh, if you don't understand your architecture, or you've not really changed how your teams work, or how you fund product development, how you think about compliance, it's like having a really fast, modern car, but being a terrible driver. Like you've got to know how to work with this stuff.
1: Yeah, well, they're certainly growing. And uh, they've got some really interesting um, customers. So one of those is uh, SockGen, and they've got idea bank, um, and they've got several international um, brokers as well. But to your point, Simon, um, do you think this is the sort of first rung on a ladder towards a more modern bass solution for your for your bank or uh, older sort of fintechish organisation? Um, I guess. I mean, uh, the thing that comes to mind is that it might be expensive to roll this out because you might be reliant on some more expensive partners.
2: Yeah so I think my challenge with it is not that my challenge with it is that you've outsourced product development to a certain degree and I know what they're giving you is a is a toolkit to then get better at product development but the the mindset shift is moving from the producer of commodity products you know we sell deposits for this price we sell loans for this price to really deeply understanding customer problems and actually selling services you know um, the smart features that Chime had yes okay people thought it was a gimmick get paid early but turns out it was one heck of a gimmick that really made differences to, to some people's lives so having the culture the talent the team that can come up with those features in the first place is the really, really important thing. Not just having the tools that could help you create them because bringing this in might allow you to catch up a little bit faster, but catching up to what and why and, and actually deeply understanding what customers want has still got to be the, the core skill set. And then secondly, like, do you understand how this is changing your infrastructure? And is this solving your problem now but cementing a problem in for tomorrow because uh, something like fintech os can abstract the pain away can really change um change how things work for customers but it also sort of does it trick you into thinking, oh well, now I don't have to deal with all of that legacy equipment? And, you know, with even though I've got a fintech OS, I could probably get off my legacy a little bit faster and a little bit cheaper. But do I have to? Do I have to go through all of that pain now? So I wonder as well about, you know, it, it's kind of like the painkiller rather than um, rather than actually solving the underlying cause. But it's not a bad thing to kill pain, right? Mm-hmm. Let's let's be let's be straight about it.
1: Well, at least in the short term or medium term, I guess, until you've got um, something better. Um, Ellen, what were your thoughts on this? Do you think this is a band-aid solution or do you think, what are your thoughts? Well,
3: I think it's interesting. I mean, if you take a step kind of back on, and maybe Simon, to your point on the why is this happening, I think one of the really positive outcomes of all the fintech evolution over the past few years is that it's really sort of reset customer expectations of financial services. So it's, it's kind of analogous to what Amazon did with retail and with customer experience. And so banks have to kind of catch up. And I think that's where we're seeing a lot of the interest in these types of products. And um, a lot of them are really open to using partners to do that because it can actually be a really efficient way of doing it. I think if you think about building software, it's a bit of a funny thing because unlike other areas where a bank might invest, the quality of the output doesn't necessarily correlate one-to-one with the scale of the input. So I mean by that is if you're a bank and you're building a new HQ The investment you put in it is probably going to correlate to how great of a building that is, give or take 10%. But actually with software, you can have a really small, scrappy team that can build best world in class, best in class software. Um, and it may not be easy to replicate that within these organizations. And so I I think it's true to say and fair to say this may not wipe away the years of tech debt that may still have to come. Um, but if it is improving the end customer experience and helping these banks, Kind of leapfrog a little bit, then overall, I see it as a good thing. Yep,
1: yeah, I agree, and I think uh, maybe it's about stitching together the banks' systems and their data internally with uh, more modern, more modern tooling as well, and that would be a good first step. Anna, what were your thoughts on this? It's just interesting because they're—I mean, obviously they're not the
4: only company offering this, as Simon was saying, and and not, I mean, we've seen it on the sort of wholesale side as well in trading. There's a company called Genesis that does a local platform as well. So it's it's clearly a trend that's, that's grown in tech in general, and now it's coming to finance. It's funny, though, that with, you know, the providers in the space, they're so sticky, you know, and so, and they're sticky for a reason. And so I wonder how you can actually manage to, you know, get, a, say, a small credit union in the US to ditch Fiserv or whatever they're using and, and come to you, right? Like, um, it, it just seems like such a challenging thing, but obviously one that would make such a difference, right? Because then you don't need to have the best developer. You, you just need to have someone that's okay at, the, at being a developer. And maybe you you know your customers better than anyone else. You know your customers better than Chase because you're a small, you know, local bank. Um, And so then you combine the two and it's quite powerful, but I don't know how realistically, if you're just gonna confront like contracts that last 200 years in eternity for like your, the CEO's kids as well. And that's just a disaster.
2: So, I know I think the idea of this is that you actually park it over the top of the FISA, the FISs, right. and, and it allows you to do digital stuff over the top without having to replace that stuff. And that's kind of my worry is that you never actually fix what was broken underneath but you get this temporary benefit. And because you are now moving towards this low-code model, to Ellen's point, which I thought was phenomenal, which is digital is a small team sport, right? And it's about quality of team, not size of team. And so, like, if you can... like. Uh, Stripe is one of the canonical examples, as is Twilio, as are many others. Sendbird one of the new ones. Great APIs matter when your customer is developers, and great APIs matter and great um, product development matters when you're competing for attention um, with all of these fintech apps and great user experiences that are out there. And I think fintech OS gets a small bank from uh, where they were to somewhere a lot better, especially in the pandemic. If they were relying on branches and now suddenly they have a fairly good mobile experience, like that's really really good and for some organizations that's really really important and it could potentially allow them to innovate from there but their own the tool is only as good as the people that use it so you as good as fintech os might be you're still going to need that skill set around you know kind of digital product management digital product experience building
3: yeah and I, I will just say just from all of you know we've we work with a number of financial institutions and it's a lot of what my team spends its time on. And they're just, they're so really hungry for this. And I was just having a conversation about a week or so ago with a board member of a, a large FI here in the UK, who is just you know, looking at for any way to help improve the efficiency of how they do underwriting because actually it's a huge cost item as well. And so I think uh, Mel, Melly made an earlier point on is this going to be more costly? I think in a lot of ways, even if this these kinds of solutions can help um, make just even pockets of the infrastructure more efficient, it can actually end up being a huge cost saver even when it's done through partnership. So um, I think it's an interesting approach and also may allow them to go deeper in the stack over time.
1: Yeah, great points, Um, agree 100%. I have to move us on um, to the next story, which is Rishi Sunak announcing a task force to explore the British um, central bank digital currency. That's quite exciting. So this story is over on Finextra. Uh, The Chancellor of the Exchequer, Rishi Sunak, announced the launch of a new fintech task force to coordinate exploratory work on a potential central bank digital currency led by the UK Treasury and Bank of England. In response, the Bank of England has set up a dedicated CBDC unit to explore the creation of a digital pound and set up two stakeholder forums on CBDC engagement and technology. Alongside this, the Chancellor promises a new financial market infrastructure sandbox for firms innovating with new technologies like distributed ledger technologies. The UK government also intends on consulting this summer on reforms to capital markets, such as removing the double volume cap and share trading obligation. Um, So I think that relates to MIFID um, MIFID 2, which will ensure that the UK, quote, continues to have the highest possible regulatory standards while improving our competitiveness, supporting economic growth and making sure the rule book is fair and proportionate. So I found this one really interesting um, because they are removing the double volume cap and the share trading obligation, um, which I guess is akin to kind of increasing opacity to an extent, um, but making the UK a lot more competitive. But then the introduction of a central bank digital currency, um, uh, I mean there's loads of there's loads of opportunities there. Um Simon, I'm guessing that you've got a lot to say on on this.
2: I always do, don't I? Never shut up. Um CBDC, central bank digital currency, there's two types that people talk about, wholesale and retail. Um, And retail being like the coins and notes in your pocket, it is a type of central bank money that where I send you this token, you now have it and I no longer do, Um, which feels a lot like using Venmo or Monzo or anything else, like I'm just sending you money on an app. But what's happened when I've sent you money on Monzo is a database at Monzo has said my account number has gone down and your account number has gone up. Whereas if you think about a physical wallet, if I have a coin in my wallet and I take it out and I give it to you, you now have that coin and I no longer do. And that can operate completely without a central actor um, and it could operate even offline. So that's what's really interesting about it. if you were trying to take cash out of the economy, trying to get rid of paper, central bank digital currencies for retail could make a lot of sense. And indeed, that's part of why why China's looked at it and many other countries like Sweden are, I've looked at it. Um, there's also wholesale central bank digital currencies where people settle with the banks and they deal with cross-border payments and they access central bank's balance sheet directly um, and that is hugely valuable for people dealing with large amounts of money large contracts the the lender of last resort is is the the one that you want to work with and potentially a wholesale Cbdc has much more credibility in the world of financial institutions than the retail one in the short term that could really solve a significant amount of problems around Around capital efficiency, capital requirements, and capital ratios that, that banks have to deal with. Now, as you step back from all of that, that's a really cool explainer. But what's the chancellor actually said? We're going to create a task force. What do you do when you don't know what to do? Create a task force. So I'm a little bit, I'm a little bit disappointed in this, if I'm honest, guys. Like. Come on, UK, you could have done better here. Like, China's already got a pilot with 200,000 users. Sweden's done a pilot with a bunch of users. Less, a little less conversation, a little more action. Like, let's just try this out. All of that said, CBDC is the side story here. The story to me is opening up access to central bank money and the central bank balance sheet and financial market infrastructure for non-banks. That is huge. Potentially very large corporations, potentially um, companies like TransferWise and Monzo and other... You're really changing the nature of who gets access to the central bank here at that level. And that's really like FinTech Insider 301 class stuff. And we could probably do a whole show about it. But I think that could be a lot more significant in time than anything around the CBDC stuff.
1: Yeah. um, Anna, what do you think about this? Because I'm kind of agreeing with um, Simon, but I'm almost thinking this might be a bit of a front just to allow the UK government to... uh, pander to international investors with regards to Brexit, Um, because I think there's a little bit of politics um, in here, particularly around the competitiveness of uh, UK fintech landscape and the uh, attractiveness of of the environment. I think if we were to say, oh, we're going to be super progressive and we're going to launch a central bank digital currency um, and it's going to be amazing for retail investors. But we're also thinking, oh, my God, actually, on the institutional side as well, what does that mean for banking? We're already quite disruptive in this space with Brexit. And what what are your thoughts? I agree that it's a lot of like marketing. The the, the, the idea that digital currencies
4: are great for marketing applies to the public sector as well. And, you know, they all started talking about it more after Libra was announced, No DM. Um, It's interesting, again, yeah, it's a task force. So you would have imagined a paper by now at least, right? Um, but the thing with central bank digital currencies is, the more you think about them, the more it's just a headache. I would imagine because if you do the, the the like one where you're directly giving access to consumers, then you need commercial banks anymore. Like you just have your wallet, but and will a central bank or a government actually try to get or do some, does something that throws commercial banks under the bus? These are giant businesses with employees like that it's just it's insane. And then also, like, but then at the same time, I, I guess you are seeing maybe China, and so they're under pressure to try to do something. Um, I, I mean, if if this looks a bit complicated, then I'm, I'm thinking, what about the digital euro? Like, there you have to have all these countries agree. They don't agree on anything, <laughs> and now they have to agree on a model that no one's agreed on yet. And if if we look at Sweden, and they're super advanced on on everything as usual, and they're the ones that are that are that are you know more advanced on this. There's discussions there on their coin as well, um, with the banks worried that they'll be rendered useless. But then, if, if you go for a softer model, then what's the point? It's just it's just such a mess. But then I, I I don't know. Maybe it's my small brain. I I can't I can't comprehend how how they would do it in a way that makes everyone happy, but is also the best way to actually innovate and also to you know compete with either Bitcoin or whatever is coming.
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I think that, um, it- Finding the correct path and the path that will make this thing actually work is really important. There has been some uh, sort of horror stories, um, particularly one from Ecuador, I think, um, back in 2018, and uh, another in, uh, you know, Venezuela as well. So there have been stories where this uh, has been announced, has been really exciting, but then kind of nothing's happened, or it's been very secret, or uh, has been used to to other ends. Uh, Ellen, last uh, last comment from you. And uh, I know I know someone wants to jump in here again as well, but. Okay. Last last I, comment I, from Simon I, I will,
3: I will jump in. I, I mean, I think everything you just said, Melanana, is, is kind of the bull case for the task force, right? I mean, this is an area where you want to tread lightly because it can have very serious implications for commercial banks, um, for financial stability of the economy, for how we think about how cr- credit availability in the market. And so I, I do actually think the task force, um, it, It is maybe a prudent way forward. Now, we have to see kind of how fast that moves and what comes of it, because as Simon mentioned, there are many permutations of central bank digital currency, and so remains to be seen what'll what'll come there. I would agree, though, that the um, access to the opening of the infrastructure is really the exciting piece of a lot of these announcements. And so we have seen the Bank of England really pioneer that when they opened up the real-time growth settlement to non-banks. I know that is something that the companies like TransferWise use, and I think from, from our standpoint, from Stripe standpoint, and from my own, seeing that kind of expand into more areas and broader is, is really exciting. Um, so I agree that that is a, one of the more tangible, exciting announcements that came out of this.
2: Uh, and I don't want to be unfair to the Bank of England. There's, uh, their working paper or the discussion paper from March of um, of 2020, um, the Central Bank Digital Currency Opportunities, Challenge, and Design, was an exceptional piece of work. So the, it's not that people don't understand it in the in the, uh, already. It's just that I feel like we've done this homework already. The Bank of International Settlements did a tremendous report on the design choices for central bank digital currencies and how you avoid narrow banking with a tiered system and how you prevent competition and how you can materially grow gdp it was bank of england working paper 605 yes i remembered the working paper number from 2016 that first did the economic work on the value of a wholesale cbdc so it, if the if the discussion and the task force helps everybody else understand the homework that's already been done great but we know these, we've, we've done a lot of the homework. I think it is time to get on with the action. But uh, Ellen, your point is, is a good one. Let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. Let's not get distracted by CBDC. Actually opening up access to this infrastructure is, is the story.
1: Okay. Talking about stories, we are moving on to the next story, which is Apple introducing the Apple Card uh, family, enabling people to share Apple Card and bill credit together. So this story was uh, over on apple.com. So it's one of their own stories. And uh, it's that American couples will soon be able to share an Apple card, merging their credit lines and building credit. Oh, I don't know how I feel about that. I mean, sharing a credit line or credit with my partner I'm just not sure how he'd feel about that I'm far too irresponsible anyway um the new apple card family feature means that an apple card can be shared between two eligible customers as co-owners who can build credit together get a combined limit see each other spending oh yuck and share responsibility for making payments and get a single monthly bill to pay. Jennifer Bailey, VP of Apple Pay says, there's been a lack of transparency and consumer understanding in the way credit scores are calculated um, when there are two users of the same credit card, since the primary account holder receives the benefit of building a strong credit history, while the other does not. Apple Card family lets people build their credit history together equally. The new card can also be shared with anyone who is 13 years or older as a participant so that parents can give kids the chance to spend while still keeping tabs on purchases and uh, setting the spending limits. Now, sorry to laugh through that, but I think my parents would have been absolutely horrified <laughs> if this came out when I was a teenager. Um, am I the only one who thinks that this is a bit nuts? Uh, Anna, what, what do you think?
4: Yeah, now you reminded me of me as a teenager and getting, or, or not even teenager, it was early, uh, late teenager and getting a call from my dad saying the bank branch manager called and you're like under you owe them two hundred euros or whatever it was at the time. So now I'm thinking, yes, they wouldn't have been happy, but I guess in a way maybe it would have helped me be more responsible or, or you know, get you know, I I I don't know. I'm 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 not sure. I I I don't understand if if it's financial inclusion play? It's a I think
1: get- it probably is. Yeah, I think you're probably right. And do you know what? As much as I find this personally really cringy, um, I think that uh, when we because we live in the UK, there's sort of a statute of limitation on uh, how bad you can be and how quickly you can fix your credit score. But in other countries, this just is not, you know, this is not the case. We did a piece of work in uh, South America quite recently. And um, I learned that, you know, in Mexico and uh, Brazil, if you forget to pay your credit, card, or if you forget to pay your electricity bill, even when you're 17, it can prevent you from getting a mortgage when you're 40, which is like terrifying, you know. Um, Ellen, what are your thoughts on this? Well, I think it brings to an interesting point
3: with your with the example you just gave, Melissa. That it, I think what's not new here, but is interesting, is um, using kind of alternative data points for credit and credit underwriting, and so. Um, like with Stripe Capital, this is a lot of what we thought about when we were building that product, that we could actually use someone's payment data to be able to, to give them credit in a case where they may not. Um, there's other companies obviously doing this, companies like Koda that are doing that through um, sending account data. Um, but for me, I, I see that as, as sort of an interesting positive here of kind of approaching credit in a new way. And I, I do think that space has been ripe for innovation over the past few years. And so from that end, I, I see it being positive. Now, whether this helps with um, teaching teaching children about financial education, I think remains to be seen. There, there's also other ways of, of going about that, but I do think the, the the credit story is is interesting.
1: I hate to be a pessimist, but I'm also thinking about um, you, you know financial inclusion and um, particularly over. I think over in the US, we we hear lots of um, stories recently, particularly on on this show, about um, the need for financial inclusion and you know lots of community based banks, and a lot of those problems are that parents or grandparents will have had um, you know problems and maybe younger members within the family are working to help try and support the whole family and um, try to reset some kind of balance for me as quite an individualistic uh, I suppose thinker and um, quite independent I find it uncomfortable that if you're Um, partner or if your parents or if your family have made a mistake, potentially that would actually impact your credit score as a young person as well. So I'm kind of seeing the negative more than the positive. Simon, what are your thoughts on this?
2: Yeah, I I get where they're going, right? Because there's a whole generation of people who um, to buy their first house may need help from their parents, um, and so finding ways to include is is of value. Um, we've also seen uh, a whole bunch of uh, services like GoHenry and Osprey, and I think it's Greenlight in the US. I always get them mixed up with Green Sky, um, that are the um, kind of card for teenagers, and so. There's no better way to learn how to manage money than to start managing money. And so and then the the third trend around that is the whole thing that chime has launched a credit builder apple had path to apple card generally there are so many people in the united states that have either a bad credit score or a thin files or are immigrants that is a massive opportunity maybe 80 million maybe 100 million people that is an enormous market that is just not being addressed so finding ways to get them into the ecosystem just makes sense But the flip side of this is, like, your credit score can go down as well as up if you start sharing the thing. Like, that's the point I think that you guys have pointed out. And it's not only can you build credit together, you can destroy credit together. Like, do you want that? Like, do we understand what this could do to families? Like, I don't know. I I think... With the right controls, with spend controls, with, with all of that, this becomes a sort of parent card that's a sort of leg up into the world of credit that's really well done. Um, but given there's a bank behind the scenes behind Apple, given that um, credit windows and credit policies are what they are, this is going to take some really good product design to, to manage elegantly. And of course, we saw... That Apple got a lot of brand blowback initially for being gender biased um, when the credit scoring algorithm that was provided by Goldman underneath the hood uh, actually weighted more towards men than women and was excluding some people that even had um, fair credit scores. So you've got to tread very carefully when you're a big global brand like Apple in this space. So I appreciate what they're trying to do with product. When Apple does something like this, it tends to come correct and it tends to think these things through. So I imagine they've thought about all of this. But my goodness, um, this is an interesting one.
1: It really is, yeah. And I'm also thinking about things like, you know, buy now, pay later and uh, what happens if your, you know, teenage daughter buys a really expensive computer and doesn't tell you and then you miss the installments and yada, yada, and it affects your ability to remortgage your house. Um, Yeah, disaster. (laughs) So, right, moving on to segment five, stories we didn't have time to cover. So we're moving on now as we're getting to the end of the show, just to round up some of the other stories of the week that we didn't have time to cover, but definitely still deserve a shout out. Simon, do you want to start?
2: Yeah, story from Finextra. Klarna launches a carbon footprint insights service for 90 million consumers. Uh, The initiative is part of their 1% pledge, which will bring more than $10 million worth of projects tackling climate change and loss of biodiversity alongside 50% emissions reduction uh, for 2030. Every purchase made through Klarna's payment methods will include a carbon footprint measured by Deconomy, reaching then 90 million customers. Uh, the CEO of Klarna said, with fat, sugar, and salt labeled on food we buy, why shouldn't CO2 emissions be just as visible? This type of information shouldn't be a premium or luxury that consumers pay for, but rather an essential part of every shopping journey. You know what? I agree with this. You know like if you it, you should just understand the cost of things you're doing. Why not? I'm I'm a big big fan of this move. I know um I think Stripe has a capability like this. Uh, Shopify does too. I I just find it very hard to see the downside of this. I do worry a little bit that people start to become uh, blind to this stuff like uh, the the warnings they put on cigarette packets and things like that where it's like oh you're burning carbon that we become numb to it. But I believe awareness is probably a good thing. And let's start to think about how we can change habits and behaviors with subtle design as well. Mel.
1: Thank you. So the next story is Revolut plotting a path to a $10 billion valuation with new funding. The founder of Revolut is plotting a new fundraising that will value the company at more than $10 billion, that's 7.2 billion pounds, and cement his status as one of Europe's youngest fintech billionaires. The process has yet to get underway, but Revolut's investors anticipated it valuing the company at between $10 billion and $15 billion. Even at the lower end of the spectrum, it would make Nick Storonofsky, the app's founder, a multi-billionaire. Mr. Storonofsky has signaled in the past that he does not foresee taking Revolut public until it's worth at least $20 billion, suggesting that a listing remains some way off. Uh, well, I mean, they're huge, huge numbers. Um, but we, we've we talked about uh, Revolut a lot on the show, and they, they seem to be doing things left, right and centre. So they've already got a presence in 35 um, countries, I know that they're trying to get a banking licence in the US and in the UK. Um, and I guess I also heard that they are trying to focus in on the SMB market in the US, which is uh, everyone knows is really underserved. Um, So that's, that's sort of their focus. I'm not sure how that really takes them to the $20 billion valuation. Um, But I'm sure Mr. Storinoski knows what he's doing. Um, I mean, there have been a few indications, though, over the ponds that um, Revolut doesn't necessarily have like a brilliant product market fit. And I don't know if that's to do with the incumbent banking market. So in Canada, for example, I think there was like a two year beta trial uh, without a banking license that failed to make a dent. So perhaps it's with the addition of a banking license maybe they've got some indicators of um, the, the likelihood of that happening which is driving up um, driving up investor confidence back over to you Simon.
2: And the story we didn't have time to cover is Goldman Sachs are investing $50 million in Starling Bank. The investment is an extension of the bank's oversubscribed £272 million Series D. Starling now has more than 2 million current accounts, including 350,000 small business accounts. And its deposit base is more than £6 billion sterling, which is up um, more than a billion dollars from a year ago. Uh, It's been on course to report its first full year in profit by the end of its next fiscal year. Ann Bowden, founder and CEO of Starling Bank, says the funding from Goldman demonstrates the strength of demand from investors and represents another vote of confidence in Starling. Goldman Sachs will bring valuable insight as we continue with the expansion of lending in the UK. Hmm. Um, Makes you wonder what else might or might not be going on behind the scenes there. I have no insight either way but it's an interesting move. Uh, Goldman has been prolific in hedging its bets. It takes lots of bets in lots of different companies. Um, it has been really quite interesting in how it's developed Marcus. Uh, it has a fintech strategy to make investments, but it's also producing its own APIs. Goldman's one to watch. I think they're the, the dark horse of like really trying to get into this space. Um, and Starling, again, didn't get all the headlines in the early days, but quietly, steadily is slowly building momentum um, and slowly building a really nice business. So um, there's very little to to dislike about this story. So um, shout out to everybody involved.
1: Absolutely. Agree. love Starling Bank. Right. So we're moving on to our and finally story. Um, This one's a bit of a mouthful. So bear with me. Slim Jim, yes, the smoked meat stick vendor has a Dogecoin strategy. News of it sends Doge to an all time high. The social media savvy Snack foods saw its Twitter follower count increase 160% after it began engaging in a Shiba Inu meme coin content last quarter. On their earnings call, the CEO credited the Dogecoin community with playing a large part in delivering Slim Jim the ultimate win in Adweek's March Madness-themed brand face-off earlier this month. This is the first time. Dogecoin has ever been featured in an earnings call, and certainly the first instance of a public company deploying a strategy around Doge. Just the publication of this story was enough to cause Doge to more than double to a new watermark of 29.8 cents from 13.6 cents before the report. In recent trading, Doge is up more than 4,800% year to date. I'll come to you first on this, Simon.
2: I was going to say to the moon. Um, Dogecoin, if you've not seen it, is is a famous meme. Um, so it was a it was a cryptocurrency created around a meme of a shocked and surprised looking dog. And um, why is that a story? Why does that matter? Well, Dogecoin is is kind of created as a joke, and the joke is, gets funnier the higher the price gets, and depending on how you look at it, it's funny for different reasons. It's either funny because it's making fun of everything to do with crypto um, and sends up all of the coins and all of the bitcoins has just been, it's clearly ridiculous because this coin that was created as a joke is the fastest growing one. And then on the flip side of it, whether you look at it from uh the uh kind of the the crypto side it's funny because it makes fun of wall street and you're just playing them at the same old game because those wall street lot have been colluding on all of this stuff all along and now we're playing them at their own game and isn't it funny la 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 the what's interesting about this is um to to the point earlier memes move markets like actually there's people at home with money to spend with stimulus checks and unfortunately the prices tend to go down as well as up it's all very funny when the price goes up but people may lose out on this stuff so uh yeah but there's the, no surprise um brands that are a little bit edgy want to align themselves with with whatever's getting attention and dogecoin got a lot of attention um this is not investment advice do your own research but go watch some of those charts it has been astonishing to watch what's happened with crypto um and it's another little point on the, on the bottom of this Uh, The Reddit forum admins have allowed, I think, four or three different cryptocurrencies to be discussed on Reddit. And almost immediately after that, Dogecoin started to move. And then Reddit um, banned discussion of cryptocurrency on Reddit. And then what happens? Almost out of anger, the Redditors um, revolt. So there is always a few things going on. And then Elon Musk, the meme lord himself, kind of gets involved. Memes are moving markets, and I don't know that that's necessarily a good thing, but it is worth understanding. I
4: mean, to me, it's quite funny, and I, I just see it as a fun making fun of crypto a bit. But it was, like I wrote a story the other day when Doge Day was proclaimed on on 420. Um, and because, as I said, I'm getting too old for this beat, it took me a while to, oh, it's 420, oh, I get it now. Um, and and it's, they were like, Doge was like the fifth largest crypto by market cap. And you know, it's super popular. It's not used for anything except to to buy. And so I think it just exemplifies some of the issues that people might have with crypto now as it is. And it's it's just I mean, I don't know. If we wanna see it, and for once I'm not gonna be like the party booper, it's just it's just quite fun (laughs) of all the things going on in the world. It is fun to see people all over the world buying something that has is a coin with a picture of a dog and they can't use for anything and, and they're trying to get it up and it it's also less like cult, cultish as other cryptos like the, the people be, believe in it but they also kind of believe in it ironically whereas the other ones it, it's like real hardcore believers and so at least there isn't that you know weird aggressive vibe behind it it's, it's just quite fun but yeah I agree right like <laughs> You know, do they realize, does everybody realize that they could lose all their money? I just don't know how much money they're actually putting in into it, though. You know, it, it's just very little for, as a game because it isn't
1: worth very much. Right. It's so fun as well that um, brands are aligning themselves. I think if they have if they're an unusual brand or um, they're in some way a bit rebellious or nonconformist, I, I find it really fun that they're sort of aligning themselves on social media to rebellious um reddit driven crypto community um i can imagine that you know their sales of uh what is it smoked meat sticks will probably will probably go up as well um ellen last word on this do you think that dogecoin can be a credible cryptocurrency what are your thoughts
3: well, well i think the first step is slim jim enabling you to buy slim jims with dogecoin so there if make that happen. we'll see but um no i agree it's uh th- th- this is a it's a fun one to end the segment on because it is it's It is pretty funny.
2: (laughs) And we'll be eating Slim Jims on the moon with Dogecoin.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. Great. So that wraps up the weekly news show. Thank you so much to all of our wonderful guests. Where can people find out more about you, Ellen?
3: They can find me on LinkedIn, Alan Moeller. That's me.
1: Perfect. And Anna? On Twitter, and you can find my stories on Reuters.com. Brilliant. And Simon?
3: Find me on
2: LinkedIn or at SYTaylor on Twitter or, of course, 11FS.com.
1: Super. And as for me, you can find me on LinkedIn and... uh more recently but sporadically twitter thank you for listening as well if you like what you've heard subscribe to our podcast and don't forget to leave us a review it helps us to make it better and helps others to find the show as well and as always if you want to join the conversation you can find us on social media just search for 11fs or fintech insider or you can also email us at uh, podcast at 11fs.com thank you so much everybody
5: goodbye